0: Bootstrapping your business can sometimes feel lonely. Welcome to the Bootstrapped European Entrepreneur Podcast, where you can hear the stories of your peers, as well as the strategies and tactics that have helped them grow their businesses. Your host, Uroj, co-founded a company as a student and led it through the trials and tribulations of bootstrapping to the IPO on the stock exchange. Hi, our guest today is Faris Zachina. Co-Founder and Co-CEO of Ministry of Programming, a company from Bosnia and Herzegovina that helps software startups design and develop their products and sometimes also invest in them. In this episode we discuss how and why they changed their business model from simply outsourcing development to helping their customers with product design and business decisions, why they have sometimes taken leadership positions in their clients' companies and what is the most important trait of a successful startup founder. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. Hi, Faris. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Your company could be just another, let's say, outsourcing player from the region, but it didn't turn out in this way. How come?
1: I think outsourcing is, you know, it's a good business model. It's kind of obvious. In this region, most companies started that way because I think it's a low-hanging fruit. And this region is pretty well known for talent and engineering. Back in the days, even in Ex-Yugoslavia, we, we had a good engineering culture. So I think most companies start with that because it's easy. I mean, it's easy to start. It's not easy to run any company. And in a way, when we started also, we we in 2015, we kind of uh, also thought, how, how can we build a company that builds startups? And uh, and at that point in time, we didn't have a lot of experience building or running companies. Um uh, Okay. Can, can I just ask, uh, why
0: did you want to build a company that builds startups, let's say? Where did this wish came yeah, from? That's a good
1: question. I think it, it came from maybe our background, which, I mean, in high school and also during faculty, we were more on the creative side, you know. I believe we are creative people because I, w- I was actually working as a product designer 17 years ago, and then, um, and then I transitioned into programming. But then I always enjoyed, let's say, the front-end side of things and uh, design and what you can call UX, UI design, and uh, because that's kind of the iceberg. That's where the user gets in contact with product. And and, uh, over time, I was fascinated with these stories about how a small team can build very successful a very successful product like for example instagram how is it possible that, that a team of uh, 10 20 30 people can build such an amazing story a billion dollar company and then i think that always inspired us uh, also we worked in different kinds of companies me me and my brother and uh, you know amra and our sister ayla i mean we worked in many different types of companies but i think we enjoyed it the most working in product companies because i think it's a, it's a more enjoyable experience because you are part of the process as an engineer you are able to contribute much more to the product this is why i mean i personally have not enjoyed so much consulting or freelancing or even outsourcing because i always felt a bit on the sidelines in in this if you work for a corporation for example but if you work for a startup and if you are Involved in in product and design and development in a deeper way, then I think you feel more fulfilled. You feel a higher purpose. You feel like you, your contribution is more valuable. So I think we started from that perception that uh, building startups is more interesting and uh, it gives this chance of a really crazy journey and roller coaster. I mean, some people don't like it uh, because they believe startups mostly fail or there is not a technical challenge or something like that but actually we enjoyed startups exactly because exactly for that reason because they are destined to fail so your contribution can uh, change the odds and and, uh, if you do a good job you can build these crazy stories that we all that we all aspire to like google was a startup apple was a startup all of these companies were startups back in the days and they were built in the garage today the garage is the cloud and uh, the internet so anybody can build a startup and anybody can do that so we were inspired by by those stories and i think uh, we wanted to build products that would make a difference in the world
0: so how how come that you didn't then let's start a startup but uh, now let's say currently ministry of programming is a strange business it's a startup studio it's an investor it's uh let's say it's everything uh and i i think there's interesting story probably behind it how how did you start the company
1: i mean that's a great question we wanted to build uh you know some of our own products and concepts but uh, we felt that it was maybe a bit too risky for us because as in the Balkans, like the entrepreneurial or the startup ecosystems are not, or were not well built in 2015. So, for example, in cities like Ljubljana or Belgrade or Zagreb or Sarajevo, it's really hard because uh, to build a startup ecosystem, you need a few things. For example, you need access to mentors, you need access to capital, uh, you need accelerator accelerators or incubators. You need many ingredients to facilitate that process. So, so in a way, it's. Uh, I mean, we felt in 2015 that we were not ready to, to, to make uh, the jump into building one product right away, putting all of our eggs in one basket, especially because we didn't have all of these support structures. I believe, for example, if somebody lives in Stockholm or San Francisco, it's, it's much easier because you have access to so much capital and so much, so many mentors, and then uh, that jump is, is not that difficult, actually, So because you can, you can relatively easily get funded if you have a, a decent – uh, pitch. So I think that was the reason why we didn't start with with one product. And instead we figured, okay, maybe we should work with external founders on their concepts and their startups and then learn how to do it. So that was maybe one of the initial premises behind MOP.
0: And uh, where do you find the first client with such, let's say, unique approach at the time?
1: Yeah. So the problem is, if you start with that premise, let's say we want to build startups with interesting founders, but get in early when you can make that contribution, when you can be an important part of the process. So you're not only like, let's say, employee number 75. you know. So, so if you want to start from scratch, then uh, you need to find some really interesting people that have good ideas, but they still have a good network and they have maybe access to some basic capital. So how we did it is that initially... We reached out to some people we know. So we started building startups in Switzerland with with some people that we, we got connected with previously. But also there was a crazy story where my co-founder, Rashad, he, he sent a cold email to this guy, Ben Bilski, in, in Germany. And I mean, he literally saw this startup online, this product. It was like a fashion tech product. And uh, he liked it so much that he, he, he just cold emailed the founder. He said, yeah, like, well, let's work together because I, I really like this product and maybe we can do something together. And then we ended up building a new fintech company together with that founder. Uh, and yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> over time we built like a company worth 600 million euros from scratch with that founder, like a fintech company in Germany. From a cold email. Yeah, from a cold email, literally. Um, About a fashion startup. Yeah, that fashion startup was shut down. It was just like an experiment that he was running. But then we started this new thing, which is which was like a crypto stocks trading platform. I think, yeah, I mean, we got lucky maybe, of course, because, I mean, that, that person, that founder was extremely capable. And in some similar situations, we got also connected to other people completely randomly. But then maybe some of these companies did not succeed as much. So, So I think there was a good dose of luck. But you know, as they say in the startup world, it's, it's all about the team and it's all about the founders. So if you, if you work with really good people, then there is a high uh, probability that you can build something interesting. So I think I mean kudos to Ben Bilsky and his great passion and crazy work ethics, I mean building the company. And then we, we just joined as a part of the team and we did everything that was possible to make that company a, a unicorn you know. So
0: how come that you didn't then let's say get absorbed in this company?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question, but it wasn't immediately successful. So in the first few years, we worked with multiple startups, and then uh, I mean, the, so, so the first—I mean—to describe you, the first, let's say, three to six months, we we were definitely more like an outsourcing development company for startups. So we wanted to work only on startups, only on innovation. We were imagining these crazy stories how we would build like the next Instagram from scratch. Uh, and that was maybe the main motivation behind that, and we sticked only to startups until today. You know, we never worked with uh, big corporations or you know corporate outsourcing and stuff like that. So we started uh, with outsourcing, and we started with several startups across Europe, with uh, you know let's say programming. So hence the name of the company, Ministry of Programming. We started as as a programming like outsourcing company for startups, but then to me it was obvious that after. After three to six months of startup building, what you realize, if you are very observant and you have this sort of like two-way conversation with your customers, you understand that startups have much larger problems than development. So, so what you learn is that startups have three main problems. One of them is recruitment and team formation. And I'm not talking only about developers. So in general, how can you assemble a team that can build a successful company? Co-founders, advisors, you know, development teams, product management teams, design designers, uh, all kinds of people, marketing people, etc. So that's one problem. The second problem is uh, product market fit, which in essence is not a development problem. It's uh, mostly a UX/UI problem and a product management problem. But that development is uh, one component of that, which makes it happen. But it's uh, only one part of it. And then the third problem that every early stage founder has is fundraising, which is kind of a pretty tricky problem, because if you want to work with startups in any business model, you need to be aware of the, of the fundraising cycle and the fact that startups collect money every 12 to 18 months, in usually in VC or angel investment rounds. And uh, that means that there is not too much sustainability working with startups in any business model, because you, you cannot guarantee that the company that's paying for your service or product is going to be there in 18 months or or two years. So the LTV and the kind of contract length or whatever uh, is really tricky. It's a tricky problem. So what we realized is that if we provide only a development service as an outsourcing company, we're going to get into trouble. And most of these companies are going to fail. And our company is going to be a nice experiment. We had a good ride. And everything went to zero, you know. So, and then what we did very organically, we started getting involved in much more than development. You know, we started like assembling design teams and product teams, which means we got outside of outsourcing because outsourcing by definition means somebody is preparing the requirements for you and sending them over. So we started taking over requirements in discovery and design and all of these processes, which are the creative part of building a, a product. So, we got out of outsourcing through that, like by, by being a uh, full product service. And then uh, we also, in 2017, we started even investing in companies to solve the fundraising problem because we just realized okay, if these companies have a hiccup in their journey and we let them fail, then we, we just wasted years of work. So, maybe we should think about supporting these companies with loans or investments so we can ensure that these companies will survive and thrive over the years. So this is where we stumbled upon this you know, VC, angel investment sort of model, which we are still doing today. We invested over 2 million in companies. So today, MOP evolved into well beyond outsourcing. You know, like, so we left outsourcing in 2015, 16, and today I, I believe we are a much larger business model, which is what I call product services plus investments plus what we call super angel or angel investments. So when a founder comes to us with an idea, we are able to be like a one-stop shop for everything that they need. Yeah.
0: Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. So if you will be patient with me,
1: let's say I have a lot of questions, let's
0: say. So first, what I found really interesting, let's say that you notice that you're not in a really good market, let's say for your services at the time, outsourcing, because let's say you have clients that are not a high-quality clients for that kind of service. No. Exactly. And and you didn't choose the obvious, and let's say in quotation mark, uh, path of changing the market, but you redesigned your services that you offered. Let's say, so This it's interesting. So why did you decide to redesign, let's say, the services? And how did you then convince your current clients that they should, uh, let's say, Outsource or, or no, not outsource more, but they should take you on as a partner. Let's see. So, why did you decide not to switch market, and why and how did you convince them to follow you along?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think it wasn't like a grand strategy of some sort. We didn't have like a lean canvas or a business model. Canvas or business model with all of these genius ideas. Uh, I think it was more like an adaptation and iteration over time. And I think it's it's actually how most companies evolve. But I mean, sometimes people like to elevate and uh, idolize founders and like geniuses. But yeah, but, but but I mean, I, I think there are great stories for uh, <laughs> let's say from the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think I mean, like mo- most people learn by by doing and by adapting in the moment. So I think one example that that I can tell you what happened, like, for example, is that in the beginning, yeah, we could have gone the, the complete outsourcing route, working with corporate clients. Um, w- one story is that uh, in 2016, I think we got an offer from Cisco, and uh, they wanted to hire us uh, and uh, as an outsourcing dev provider. And I think they sent us, like, a list of uh, 12 open positions, and it was, I can't remember the exact amount, but we're talking about like a one to two million euro contract per year. I don't know exactly. So we're talking about a pretty sizable amount of money for a company as young as we are at that point in time. I think it was probably something like much larger than what we were making with everything we we're doing at that point, much larger. But then I was looking at that PDF of what they wanted. So it was like, it, it, to me, it looked like a grocery list so they wanted three senior developers level three uh two media developers level two two database engineers level four things like that so it was more like i mean to me it looked like a laundry list of uh bodies you know to fill and uh, i mean it didn't feel good so so i think i mean like it didn't feel good to work for an for a big corporation and to rent people that way it, I, I mean it didn't feel good emotionally but also in my opinion, is it's not something that's challenging at all. So that that's also one part of the answer. So one part is more emotional. The other part is more on a way that it's not something that's fulfilling in a way that... Because I, I think in essentially, like, outsourcing is a recruitment service. So uh, there's not much to do there. You know, like, they are a pretty organized company, already successful. They have deep technical problems. And then we assemble a team for them to solve uh, maybe those problems. But I think it's... I mean... You're not passionate about it. I'm not not passionate about it, but also I think it's about also working with big companies. I mean, when you work with big companies, you are pretty much a victim of their own process. So to give you an example, because I I worked as a programmer in outsourcing companies, uh, I mean, these companies impose their processes and procedures and SLAs and whatever, I mean, requirements they want to impose on you and they restrict the ability for you to build your own culture. And I think that's a big problem. I mean, literally, I know about companies that had to introduce very detailed access control for their employees or very detailed monitoring or very detailed whatever, just because the corporations they are working for required that. So this is not unique to outsourcing, but the thing is that in outsourcing, it inhibits the ability of companies to build like a really nice culture. And very often, I think also one of the problems of working with corporations is uh, Is NDAs and like the fact that we have so many teams in the Balkans working for? amazing companies like apple microsoft whatever but they cannot tell anybody about that and they cannot put it in their cvs and they cannot put it on their linkedin and i think that's detrimental to the careers of people and in the end like it's it's not a good it's not a good thing for for people to work in that environment so so in essence i mean there are there are, there are many reasons why it didn't feel good but i think so just to be clear i don't think there is anything wrong about outsourcing i think outsourcing and consulting are completely legit uh, business models and industries there is a challenge there. There is a big technical challenge. A lot of people are enjoying working in these companies. And this is just my opinion uh, That was that, that's coming more from my maybe even personal history because, like, I always dreamed of building products, you know. So so I think everybody is unique. Everybody has different opinions. Some people enjoy working in big teams of, I don't know, thousand engineers and building, uh, working on, on a code base that has 20 million lines of code and, I don't know, whatever. So, so some people really like that, and I respect that completely. And, uh, you know, I think everybody has their different motivations and opinions. And uh, in terms of entrepreneurship, you're right completely. We could have switched to outsourcing with corporations, but, and then we would probably have made much more money than now, but we didn't want to do it because of maybe more philosophical, uh, like more philosophical, uh, like, like things in a way. So it wasn't maybe that pragmatic. If you think about it, it wasn't even like reasonable, maybe because I mean, maybe we, we we could have started with that, working with Cisco, made some money. Then I don't know whatever. But but I think what was good about this decision was that we sticked to doing one thing well, which is building startups from scratch. Uh,
0: if if I just may let's say add a little bit something to this culture, let's say it's interesting. I have a somewhat parallel experience, not so much in the startup field, but let's say when we started acquiring companies, let's say one of the possibilities for us was to to create a group and uh, let's say the first idea was really let's say to create a group and so on. and then you know like synergies again in quotation marks and you try to implement the same processes and so on and, and so on. And we really quickly we discovered that we are let's say fighting about how the stuff should be done, but both companies, let's say that were doing it already. And then when we thought about it and about the culture and so on, we, we found out, let's say, that we will if we go down this path, we will destroy the culture. And this really changed, let's say, what DHH is about. Let's say it's not long; it was no longer, let's say, acquiring companies, standardizing, but it was about, let's say, building a group of companies that are independent, that retain their culture, but are just, let's say, connected uh, through experience exchange and, uh, let's say, common ownership. So the same ownership and so on. And uh, let's say very. Where we now interact with companies is just on set, helping them to set the goals, and then we try to <laughs> leave them alone and don't do anything they don't ask for. Let's say as a help. So let's say I, I see this culture thing that you mentioned. It's uh, really, yeah, it's important and to really, but I really respect it
1: because that's the essence. I think that's the essence. And uh, I mean, even if we ignore the business models, I think people don't understand like this point at all. Like, well, I'm, so I'm saying some people don't understand this point. So the thing is. Like, I think it has to do with software engineering in general. So it's not about outsourcing or consulting or freelancing or internal teams or... so, So I think if you're building a new product, what you want, in essence, you want to have a team of people that are working collaboratively every day in the trenches and are committed to building that product together in the long term. That's, I mean, that's the simple description. So you want a team that's blended together and that is working on something across all dimensions product, design, development, infrastructure
0: yeah.
1: it's creative discipline let's say also programming it's a creative discipline and you want to be able to, to create and to contribute to that process so, so I think uh, I think that what, what people miss is that it doesn't really matter if you call it so it doesn't really matter if you do outsourcing consulting, freelancing, you know you have an internal team, you have an external team you have a combination or whatever I think what you want is to build a culture where every, all of these people are working like one team. And I think uh, I think that, that that's kind of also what we wanted to do. So this is why we went outside of, the, let's say, traditional outsourcing, because what we wanted is we, we wanted to be able to assemble teams that feel like they are one team. You know, So it doesn't really matter what the legal relationship and how you call it. I think in the end, it's about the ideal software engineering process where people collaborate together. And they're are, there are not like these walls and whatever between different teams and different people. And, and I think we managed to do it largely on most products, not on all of them. I mean, in some of them, It was hard because some of the founders did not really understand what we do, you know, and they they didn't give us like a lot of space in that uh, regard because I think what we do is a bit unusual because when we come to people, they think we are an outsourcing company. But then uh, the founders that are more open, they realized, okay, you know, like these people can be our own core team and they can work with us like literally the same as any other employee. And I think that's kind of the secret sauce behind.
0: And how how did you convince the first customer, let's say, to go beyond the outsourcing, Uh, let's say?
1: We didn't convince anybody, you know, I think it it was more organic, we didn't sell, so it was more like we just proved ourselves in the trenches that we can do more. And with some companies, we started with dev outsourcing, but then we just just get involved more and more and more into other, all kinds of things. And over time, they just see that we are much more capable than just uh, coding, you know. One concrete example is... uh, like how somebody could do it the same way that we did, you know. Like for example, wh- when development companies start working with clients, I mean, they usually uh, have this fixed box, like how they imagine the software engineering process. Uh, for example, most companies think in the in the limitations and constraints of Scrum or you know agile processes. They think that that's kind of the the overarching process of building software is like scrum or agile or scaled agile things like that and then they believe that's sufficient to build anything uh and unfortunately it's not you know so the, the truth is that uh like that's not software engineering at all so what we learned is that software engineering is much larger than agile so i call it beyond agile so companies if they want to do what we did or even build their own product or whatever. I think they, they need to start thinking beyond the agile. What it means is like, there is a larger process at hand of building a company. So like, if you look at the whole operation of building a, a product company, um, so you have so many things, like for example, you have the operational process, how how teams are collaborating together, do you have cross functional teams or like silos or whatever um, how is the like how 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 are like goals set how are roadmaps built how are priorities set from the from the top management to 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 and pushed down into the company how, what is the culture of communication and collaboration how how are what are the basic processes and cadences kind of like in routines in the company so that's like the overarching process in a company and then when you dig deeper, you, you also understand. Okay, so now when we talk about more technical processes, you have product management processes, you have design processes, and then you have development processes, and all of these are connected together. Uh, so so for example, some very concrete methodologies that we follow and we use and we are inspired by are of course Lean Startup as as, as a prototyping and uh, you know analytical process how to how to discover something worth building. Then design thinking, which is an alternative or a complementary, depending on of what you like, a way to build new products uh, and also design sprints as a kind of like a reduced version of uh, design thinking. And then also uh, continuous delivery, which I believe is well more much more advanced than uh, Agile as a process because... I mean, so Agile is as well important, also Scrum and Kanban and Scrumban, whatever, but I think uh, continuous delivery is uh, a process that we believe is uh, is a much better start for startups to think in terms of continuous delivery and uh, like applying that sort of deployment frequency and release frequency, like moving really fast with stable infrastructure and maybe using Kanban as a tool to organize work initially, but then Later on, they can move into Scrum or something. But what I'm saying is, in essence, the problem of building software is much larger than Agile. It's much larger than Scrum. and I don't think most development companies understand that.
0: Uh, Okay, listening to you now, I got a feeling that it went like this, that you saw that, uh, okay, development and so on, it's at the end of the pipeline.
1: Yes, exactly. And
0: if if the input is not the highest quality, you start, let's say, discussing the quality of the input with the client, Let's say and not just implementing it.
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. So, for example, but that was all very organic. For example, when we built the first startups in 2015, we didn't really do that initially. So, for example, we would we were more, working more like an outsourcing company. Let's say you, using like a scrum bond process, and then when we would build a startup, we would take we would say, okay, what are your requirements, and then we would collect these requirements for a startup, whatever, and then we would start building. And then we would end up in these long development cycles. Uh, So, like, for example, it would take, like, six months to develop a product. For example, we were building uh, one product in 2015. It was like an Airbnb for aesthetic surgery because uh, rich Arabs, uh, they would love to to go to Switzerland to to do these aesthetic procedures. And then uh, we were building a product to cater to these Arab population to this niche that was going to Switzerland to do aesthetic surgery. So we built literally a clone of Airbnb or something very similar to Airbnb, but for aesthetic surgery with high-end clinics in Switzerland. And uh, it took us six months to build that product. And, you know, after we, we you went you go through it, you understand, okay, like, why? Are, I mean, like, okay, we built this thing in six months, but nobody's using it now, right? So like, so, or, or we have a trouble finding the customer's, so why, why are we working like this? You know, so so and then you start questioning the whole process. First, why have we developed this in six months and not six weeks? Why have we even started with this feature set? So what's the point of this? And then what I realized over time is that the biggest waste in software engineering is building code that nobody is going to use, and that's very detrimental for the team, for the motivation of the team. Nobody likes that, but that's usually the way that most developers know how to work. And this is also how we knew how to work. We didn't know any better. But I think what we realized, okay, we don't want to end up in these long cycles. I believe six months is a very long cycle for building a product. Uh, I believe a good cycle is six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks maximum. And then how can we reduce the cycle? How can we make this more iterative? How can we launch sooner than later how can we prioritize features that are really important? you know how can we, we be part of that process? That, so I think gets, we just, that
0: gets you out of development cycle and, and the, that that gets you very
1: quickly outside of development, especially us. I mean me and uh, you know my co-founders, and I think we we got out of that mentally. We just understood you know we need to educate ourselves about product management, about design about all of these things we don't understand, which are part of software engineering, by the way. I mean, these are not... So I think a a software engineer should know all of these things. I mean, of course, you cannot be an expert in all of this, but you should know this. Uh, And then uh, you should be able to understand how to apply good processes that are larger than the pure coding process. So, So I think that's kind of... That was my conclusion. And, you know, it was very organic, very, like, iterative, how we evolved... Our own knowledge and the company processes. How can we help founders with much more than uh, than coding?
0: Okay, this now I understand this. Let's say how you go and in, get into the product, into let's say customer discovery and everything else. What it's still not so clear to me. Let's say how then you you get into investing?
1: Yeah, it was also organics. So, so to tell you a concrete story, one of the startups we we were involved in and we built. And uh, we were like in in the management of that company. The reason why we got into management of many of these companies is to be able to change operations and the operational structure. Because uh, if you don't, sometimes to be able to implement a good process, you need to to be uh, in the operational management. So there is no other way, unfortunately. So you need to be in a C-level or VP or management position um, to be able to affect how the larger software engineering process is uh, is designed. So this is why we got into management in m- many of these startups. I mean, I personally took VP positions in some of these companies. My brother took like C-level positions, etc. because we just realized, okay, we need to do this if we want to build successful companies, because we, we need to work with the founders more deeply on the operation and then uh, have leverage and authority to, to implement some of these operational processes, which are the foundation of good software engineering. And then like the investments came pretty uh, natural because if our goal is to build successful companies, you know we need to survive. And uh, what happened with some of these early startups that we built is that they were running out of money. For example, we were, were building this FinTech company and then it was the summer of, I don't know, 2016. And uh, we received an email where they, they told us, look, we're running out of money and we are between rounds. So we are between the seed round and the A round. And we don't know if we're going to be able to pay. We don't know if we're going to be able to survive. And in these situations, I mean, you need to decide uh, what what you're standing for. I mean, so as a company, are you doing this for money? Are you doing this just, are, are you just working with somebody as a client Because obviously we could have made a decision, okay, like we're just going to cut this relationship. We're going to find a new client, you know. But what we did in that situation was that we figured, okay, this is a great business. And we believe in this company. So let's borrow the money, you know. Let's give them a chance to collect the next round before they continue paying us, you know. So in a way, like we just organically stumbled upon this model through loans by or or to delayed payments so we use both methods like delayed payments and loans which are pretty much the same but uh, like you know over time we developed this loaning structure which you know like with a very low interest rate that can be converted into equity but initially it was more like delayed payments but in essence it's the same as a loan because you are just giving like a credit to to some to somebody to pay you in the future so Initially, it was a loaning structure and it worked really well, you know, because for example, that company, we had delayed payments for them. Like, okay, you don't need to pay. We're just going to continue working like normally. And then you're going to pay us when you close the next round. And they close the next round. We also helped with that $14.5 million, uh, you know, a round. And then, you know, they repay like they, they repaid us, uh, in that case, uh, you know, to equity. But of course, they can repay you in cash as well with interest or without interest. So, and then in 2017, we realized, okay, if we, since, since it seems that this equity game is really interesting, even though we didn't have any experience with uh, VC or angel investments, we have seen the first term sheet in our lives in 2016. I've never seen a shareholding agreement until 2017. Uh, but still, we felt, okay, it's an opportunity. We see that it's a big game, you know. So maybe the way to learn this is but to invest in companies, you know, and then we're going to learn, we're going to learn as, as our, as the founder we mentioned before, Ben would say, you know, learning by burning. So we started like burning cash and investing in companies. At that point in time, then we, in 2017, we built a, a full like structure, how to invest. We built our own shareholding agreements. With, we hired lawyers from t- three countries to build that, because nobody in Bosnia was uh, doing that, you know. So we had to hire people from from Sweden, from Germany, from Bosnia, work collaboratively t- to build these agreements to 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 have a good legal structure. So we spent shitloads of money on that and time and how to build that. And then we built a model where we invest like like any VC or angel investor in a way we we have two models. We can invest like sweat equity or cash but the structure is the same and we guarantee the full amount up front so we we started investing amounts like 100,000 or 150,000 euros in every company we invested in which are pretty big tickets you know for 10 to 15% of the companies most of these companies are in Sweden and uh, yeah so we started investing this way the shareholding agreement basically guarantees that we will invest the full amount 12 to 18 month period and for us, over time, we started converging more into cash investments because it's much cleaner in terms of the legal and the financial structure. I think also it helps much more um, for the, with the next fundraising rounds. And you probably also had more cash reserves. Yeah, we had more cash reserves. But, but in essence, I mean, even if you do sweat equity, I mean, some companies, they, they probably do it more lose weight as they go blah blah blah. they collect equity you know but what we were doing we were guaranteeing the full amount up front so for us really there was no difference between sweat equity and cash because for example if i tell you okay i'm going to invest 150 thousand euros in your company and i give you a contract that guarantees that amount to you i mean well, what does it matter if i give you cash or not so 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 like i, th- I think it's, it's the same for us the outflow or the cost was the same like, regardless of if we're like paying people to, to work or giving the cash to the founder, like, we, we have the same cost. So, over time, I think we converge more into cash investments. Uh, yeah.
0: I have two more questions connected to that. Let's say you mentioned that you have to decide if, if it's just a client or if it's a company you really like working with, let's say. So, how picky are you, let's say, taking on clients? Let's say, what's your process to choose? And is it now connected to this investment side
1: so do you just take on the clients that you also invest in so it's so yeah so so i think over time we, we just realized i mean because we are investing our own money to be clear we are not i mean you have angel investors and vcs i mean i mean there are other types of investors but for this example i mean angel investors usually inv- invest much smaller tickets they invest their own money and uh, we're talking about five ten thousand twenty thousand fifty thousand i mean there are angel investors that invest larger amounts, but there are not many of them. So usually, angel investors invest smaller tickets. Uh, VC's invest much bigger amounts of money, but they are not investing. Usually, they are not investing their own money. They are investing the money of limited partners that push money into the fund. So they are literally deploying uh, deploying other people' capital. So the thing is, since we were we were like uh, investing our own money, and we were investing into uh, companies that. We get involved very operationally, so unlike a VC, we are not just deploying cash and uh, hoping for the best and coming to board board meetings, etc. We were like very involved operationally in all of these companies and doing like a lot of different things for them. Um, then, yeah, we well, were very picky about what we're gonna invest in. I mean, first, we don't have un- unlimited capital. Second, we don't have unlimited time, and third. Uh, like you know, we cannot get involved in hundreds of companies because, for example, if you invest only cash, I think obviously you can get involved in hundreds of companies over time because you are not investing a lot of time or other resources. You are just pushing the cash. So, but what we we had a constraint. We had several constraints like focus time, money, etc. And then we had to select very carefully what we invest in. Usually, it was through referral because we got introduced to to amazing founders in Stockholm from uh, existing founders and then or partners and then we just review their pitch deck and we decide that we want to get involved but uh, like to answer the other part of your question i think i mean since we are investing our own money from the cash flows that we get from the services then uh, of course that we need to balance we need to decide okay what products can create the cash flows uh like that 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 creates sustainability for this model and what products do we need to invest in, which are more like of course, like you know, in terms of PL, we are losing money on this for many years or for a few years at least. I think it's a balancing act between creating cash flows and then spending money on businesses that are just getting ramped up. So right now we we approximately let's say 50, 60, 70 percent of the things are, we are working on are producing cash flows. Many of these are startups that we started in earlier, 2015, 16, 17. We built them into decently successful companies and now they're producing in like cash flows for MOP. And then uh, let's say 20, 30 percent of the companies we, we are building are very early stage startups um, that we invested in or we started working with recently that don't have any significant cash flow towards MOP. So, so it's a balance, yeah. I think it's tricky. But I mean we are following like a lot of metrics and KPIs and you know our financial models are pretty strong. We we understand how much we can risk uh, and how much we can expose ourselves. That for us means usually that we can invest in one or two companies per year. And then we also have follow-on rounds for existing investments. So yeah, so we're not trying to start too much stuff every year. I mean, that's my point. I mean, we're, we're trying to stick to one or two products. I think it creates better focus, you know. And uh, then, then we can we can focus on one one new company at a time in in a six month period approximately. Uh, and then and then hopefully some of these companies become successful, self sustainable. They hire their own management, and then we can let them live. You know, like I don't know, in the year number two, three, four on their own, which is which is perfect. Yeah.
0: I see that you're really passionate about this, let's say, starting small companies, small teams, and so on. Is there one thing that you could say that you see in a founder and you say, okay, this is the biggest mistake, this company, this team will fail?
1: There is not one reason why companies fail. I I mean, from experience, uh, I have a very kind of humbling... I mean, we had a very humbling experience of building our own company, but also being involved in many of these companies very closely. And observing and being able to see, like how companies evolve, what makes them successful and what makes them fail. So I think it's uh, when a company fails, is a death by thousand cuts. So it's not a, a single reason, and uh, all of these cuts come gradually over time. So they are compounding over time. So there are like literally dozens or hundreds or thousands of reasons why a company failed over time and then maybe people because of the overwhelming complexity of describing that uh, to somebody i mean maybe you reduce it cognitively to one variable and then you say yeah you know we we ran out of money or yeah the founder was not committed or yeah you know like whatever but the thing is uh, there are so many reasons and maybe there is one thing or two things that stand out or that come to mind uh, I think what, what we realized is that what we've seen firsthand is that what Y Combinator is telling about startups is true. So the, the three main things to build a successful company, and not only a startup, any company, are uh, self-belief, focus, and uh, determination, uh, which means that the founder should be a person that will stick to, to one idea for a long period of time. And that will be motivated to do that full time or, or overtime, even like I mean I'm not promoting overtime. All the time. All the time, literally. I'm not I'm not promoting overtime, but I think that if you found a company, and I would advise all of your listeners to do that, because that's something that's a transformative experience. I mean maybe you can comment or think about it or think you understand, but until you do it, you don't understand. But when you when you found your own company, you have all the all of the incentives of this world to work twenty four seven. And the It's maybe some people can do it in an eight to five, but what I have seen historically is that people that have their souls and like sweat and blood and tears in the company, they are the ones that succeed. And this is exactly what Y Combinator is is saying. They're saying, okay, uh, determination, commitment, focus on one thing over a long period of time is what creates success. And it's not only businesses, it's also anything else. So if you want to become a good programmer, you need to put your Proverbial ten thousand hours, in, you know. You need to focus on one thing for a long period of time. So, so I think it's the same with companies and the companies that failed or that, that have not succeeded as much. Maybe those were the companies that where the founders have not really invested all, everything they have in building these companies. And the, and the companies that succeeded wildly, they were the ones where the team uh, worked twenty four seven on building these companies and like they literally died in the trenches. I mean, uh, not literally, but I mean, like, so, 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 you know, like sometimes you can work like you're eight to five. I'm not saying it, it's, it's a problem, but even after five, you think about the, the company and you are literally always thinking about it, always caring about it. And because we all understand it takes many years to build a successful business and, uh, there is no overnight success. And I think it's, it's, it's very important to understand that you cannot you know, you, you cannot avoid the, the investment of time to, to become successful at anything. You need to invest those, like let's say, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 hours. I mean, whatever is the right number like that people want to use as an example. One of the characteristics of successful founders, if you want, uh, the willingness and ability to work on something and focus on one product or one business for a long period of time, yeah?
0: Paris, thank you for sharing all these experiences. So everybody that listened to us to till the end uh, has the focus and ability to uh, do one thing for quite a long time. So thank you, all the listeners. And I hope that you will have the opportunity to help a lot of more startups in the future.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. And I hope as well, startups are my passion, you know, products, building new things with amazing people and exciting and building exciting stories, because in the end, I believe that entrepreneurship is the um, fuel for civilizational advancement and uh, like to change the world. I mean, maybe it sounds, some people don't agree with that, but everything we built in society that's valuable is due to technology. I'm not saying only software, but like hardware, you know, any sort of technology like was something that changed society for good. And I believe we can continue doing that only by working on entrepreneurship and startups. So I would definitely invite all of your uh, listeners to reach out if they have any questions, if they need advice, if they need help. I'm more than happy to help with my limited experience and what I can offer. I'm happy to, to talk to anybody, literally, to help. And, and this, is, this is an offer for your listeners.
0: Thanks, I will put your contacts on the show in the show notes. Thank you. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And do not forget to tell your friends about it. I'd really appreciate it if you tell me which entrepreneur would you like me to interview next. Just email me at podcast at bootstrapentrepreneurs.eu. The episode show notes are available on ww.bootstrapentrepreneurs.eu. See you next week.